Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the chief economist of Moody's Analytics, and uh, I'm joined by only one of my co-hosts, Chris Chris Dorides, the deputy chief economist. Hey, Chris, what what hey, what's going on? We we lost Ryan. I thought he said I he know. was, a, you know, a, a lifer for for this podcast, but he bailed on us. I know, I know. I don't know what's happening. <sighs> Family comes first, I think. You know. <laughs> But he told. That's I think true. He, is he at Hershey Park? Is that what he said? He's at Hershey Park. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that's right. Okay. I took the family there, loading have you up ever on been chocolate. To Park? I have not been to Hershey Park. Oh, you got to go to Hershey Park. I mean, I can't <laughs> believe that. Well, you're kind of shishi. You're shishi. You only go to like you know, Disney World or something with your kids. When I, when <laughs> I haven't I was, been there either with my kids. So oh, uh, you know, I got what the heck. So. You've you not been to Disney World. <laughs> Nope, nope. Oh, well, I, I highly recommend Hershey Park. I mean, I, I have this, like, uh, I had three kids, and, you know, we all went to Hershey Park back in the day when I was your age. And uh, I have this iconic photograph of my middle daughter, uh, Anna, holding up a Hershey bar. <laughs> and she was so happy to have that Hershey bar. I'm telling you. It was like the best thing in the world. Actually, if I could find that, I'm going to put that up with the podcast, you know? So it's like my one of my favorite pictures of all time, the three kids, my wife and me, and my daughter holding up the Hershey bar with great excitement. Yeah, Pure so, joy. Pure joy. Pure, it was pure. It was pure joy. It was pure yeah. joy. But yeah, well, we'll miss Ryan. Um, actually, uh, uh, this gives me a, a more of a chance to win the statistics game. <laughs> Although I was beating him pretty easily, I I would I've been saying I would say right, Chris, haven't I been beating him pretty regularly? You were you've been on a hot streak. I've been on a hot streak. Yeah, so much week, so that last you, week he uh, thought I was yeah. everyone thought it was a plant. Yeah, that was amazing. amazing. So I, actually, a uh, fair warning, I, I upped my uh, statistics game this week. So uh -oh. in light All of right. that, so just keep that in and, mind. And we have two guests. We have two guests. One uh, our uh, uh, favorite colleague, Mike Mike Brisson. Hey, Mike, how are you? Hey Mark, how's it going? Good. Mike's uh, all things vehicles uh, for us, uh, and uh, good to have you on board because this is the topic of the podcast, the vehicle industry. We've got uh, Jonathan, Jonathan Smoke from Cox Automotive. Thank you for joining us, Jonathan. Oh, it's great to be with you guys. Yeah, and uh, Jonathan, um, before we dive in, maybe you can give us a sense of a quick sense of uh, Cox Automotive. Uh, just to give the, the listener, because uh, you guys are doing lots of different things, it'd be good for the listener. To yeah, hear. we are. And it's it, we're a privately held uh, company, so the, the name oh. Cox doesn't necessarily register with a lot of folks. Um, but we are the largest uh, auto services company in, in the world. Um, you mainly know us uh, from the brands that are more well-known. We own Mannheim Auto Auctions, mm. which is the largest uh, commercial uh, auction house uh, in in the U.S. and in uh, several other countries as well. Uh, we also own the consumer-facing websites Kelly Blue Book, uh, which has, I think, about a hundred years of of helping uh, dealers and consumers understand vehicle values. And uh, Auto Trader uh, is is the number one destination for shopping for new and used vehicles uh, in the U.S. Um, so we've got. Quite a bit of uh, understanding of the, the con consumer and dealer side of things, but we also own uh, various software products that are basically the uh, 
underpinnings of how dealers run their businesses. So oh. um, it was it was very attractive uh, when they were looking for a chief economist for me to think about the treasure trove of data, uh, because for those of us that have applied our profession at being a business economist, we know that having data is sort of key to really having good insights. And uh, absolutely, yeah. so that's what got me to do this. Cool. And interestingly enough, you were a, a, what I would call a houser before you became a vehicle maven, right? You were in the housing and you're at realtor.com. You were at Hanley yes. Wood. Yeah. Yes. And, and as a result, I've been a close uh, client of of uh, Moody's Analytics and back back to the old days of economy.com. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, All the way nice. back to economy.com. That's right. You look uh, too you look too young for that. I don't know how Yeah. Yes, uh, I, I I am I look a lot younger than I really am. Uh, <laughs> it's had its disadvantages at times, but now I'm of an age that I enjoy it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I started off in home building and actually ended up being responsible for strategy uh, for a national public home builder. And as a result, really um, sort of tapped into my uh, economic roots uh, to really build models and help understand that. And that's really, I think at one point, your team used to tell me that I was the single biggest user of data buffet. Uh, when no it was way. No way. Because we were building models and downloading yeah. data at a local level, trying to connect the dots with what was happening in housing. So I you ended know my up, brother, you know, my brother, Carl, well then. Oh yes. Yes. We, and we, you know, we actually have a joint project that, that Mike and I have been doing for probably a year and a half, maybe two years on vehicle affordability. Um, so yeah, the roots go back a long way, but started in housing. So I did home building. I then created my own data company for a while called housingintelligence.com. Mm. And um, I had the best of all timing. I started that in the fall of 2006 and was doing <laughs> extremely well until, for until about 2008. Yeah. Things got a little bumpy. Um, I yeah. didn't predict that we would have a decline, but no one predicted the quite the decline that we had. Um, I ended up uh, selling that business to Hanley Wood, which is a media and data business um, for new construction. And that's actually where I first started the, getting the title of chief economist. Um, mm. And uh, so really focused on, on home building and uh, home improvement and building product uh, type of industries. Uh, and then I was recruited by realtor.com to become their first chief economist. So I uh, got to live in that um, elite world of the competitive <laughs> economists that have been in that space across Zillow, uh, Redfin, uh, Realtor.com, you know, super exciting. And then the opportunity at, at Cox came up and I had originally been from Atlanta. Cox is based in Atlanta, mm. uh, fantastic uh, kind of family run uh, business and the opportunity to learn a new industry, industry was entertaining and uh, to me in a way to kind of keep the juices flowing. Plus, as I shared with you, the treasure trove of potential data was uh, was this the real kicker. And uh, I've been here five years now, so fantastic. Well, <clears throat> well uh, thank you for joining us. It's a real pleasure and honor to have you. And uh, you know, we play this uh, statistics game, and I, I'm hopeful you'll be able to play and willing to play. But I'm, I'm afraid to say with Ryan kind of AWOL, we don't have the cowbell, you know. We ring this cowbell if you get the answer right. And, uh, you know, uh, 
that certainly shows a, a flaw in our, uh, uh, our our planning here. Uh, but you know, my supply problem, chain. supply chain problem. Yeah, actually, it's, it's it's a brother problem. My brother Carl. You know, you know, I've been after what I want to do is I want to give guests like you a cowbell. You know, uh, I, I give I, I give all the, we give a, get a guest the, a bottle of wine, but I want to give a cowbell. But he won't give me budget for it. I don't know what the hell, I, you know, I got Carl, come on, give me some budget for this, for the cowbells. And he goes, no, no, we, you know, uh, budgets are tight is what he, what he tells me. You know, my own brother, you know, no, no. He runs a lean chip. You know, what's that lean? He does, doesn't he? He wants a lean chip. Well, you know, global supply chain problems. It's tough to get those cowbells. So it is tough to get those cowbells. <laughs> but anyway, all right. But back to business. Um, why don't we start with uh, the? There's been a couple of major economic releases this past week. Uh, the first was the Consumer Price Index (CPI) inflation. Uh, uh, Chris, you want to give us a rundown on uh, what what was in the CPI report? Uh, sure. I'll give you a high level because I don't yeah. want to take anyone's numbers away. So uh, CPI inflation for March was reported on Wednesday. It was in line with, um, I would say broadly in line with consensus. Um, consensus was for inflation to be high and uh, the, the BLS did not fail to deliver. Headline inflation was 1.2% uh, month over month. So from March to uh, February. So that is that is high. It had been 0.8% uh, the month before, so some acceleration. And then on a year-over-year -year basis, the number everyone's quoting is 8.5% year-over-year. So that okay. is the highest since um, December of 1981. I don't wow. know what you were doing back then, Mark, but uh, a lot going on, lot going uh, on back then. I was just about ready to ask my wife out for a first date, I think, in 1981, believe it or not. Yeah. You had to, go, you had to be quick because the prices were going up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's absolutely right. I remember those days pretty well, 1981. Um, I probably could tell you the unemployment rate. Uh, let's see, June of 1981. Uh, that's kind of, that was kind of in between recessions. I'd say the unemployment rate was about 7.3. Anyone, we, someone should go see June of 81. No? 7.3? Yeah, Mike's looking. Um, Mike's looking. All right. Yeah, Mike's looking. Anyway, <laughs> anyway. what was I going to say? Uh, oh, uh, how much of uh, this uh, pickup of inflation would you ascribe to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the resulting surge in oil and other commodity prices? How big a deal was that? Yeah, so uh, definitely um, uh, gas prices were up 18% alone, right? And uh, BLS subscribes 50% of the increase to, to gas. Right. Energy prices more broadly were up 11% in March, 3.5% up in February. So it, you know, just compounding uh, the impact there. Uh, if you want a little bit of, well, let's, let's, you know, everything's relative. A bit of good yeah. news is the core inflation. So inflation yeah, but, less oh, but food before and energy. You go there, oh. I, I guess, uh, you know, I would say, yeah. you know, the obvious con the connect the dots Russia invasion to CPI was <laughs> gasoline prices. But Obviously, right. that affects lots of other stuff in the CPI, like food prices. Food, food right. prices were up one percent as well, right? Yeah. Because so, diesel uh, diesel prices, you got to ship the food, the stuff from the farm to the store shelf, and diesel prices are at record highs because of Russia invading Ukraine. Uh, airline, I saw Realizer, airline fares, yeah. right? I mean, they were up, mm -hmm. I think, a lot. Uh, I think yeah. A lot going on there related to higher fuel, uh, jet fuel costs, that kind of thing. So, felt That's like right. to me. 
correct me if I'm wrong, but I felt like, or if you have a different view, that you know, a big chunk of what was going on here was Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, kind of really. That, that definitely was the accelerant yeah. here. I will say, um, owner's equivalent rent. We've talked about this before. So the housing uh, portion of this it was um, it increased 0.4 percent as well. It's the same as the, the previous month, but that's still a kind of this underlying slow-moving factor that is going to continue to to prop up inflation uh, for a while. The price gains that we've had over the last couple of years still have to make their way through the um, the CPI inflation. Yeah. Okay. So the good news. What's the good news? You good said, news. I, I would you say good news. Yeah. Uh, like relative. Relative. Yeah. <laughs> the core inflation. So inflation less food and energy, that grew at a 0.3% month over month rate, which was actually down from February, which was growing at 0.5%. So a little bit of deceleration, hopefully, <laughs> uh, going on in, in the core. So a six, but it's still six and a half percent above uh, last year's level. So the um, the light is still green for the Fed to move here, right? Clearly, six and a half percent on the core is way too high. Um, so there's little doubt, and there's actually no doubt that they're going to uh, be very aggressive in, in May with rate hikes and uh, quantitative tightening. I think uh, one of the key aspects of the moderation in core inflation, X food and energy, was an, a decline in vehicle used vehicle prices. I believe I think yes. new kind of was flattish, but used was down. So I'd love to bring the auto mavens into the conversation here, Jonathan. Uh, what's going on uh, with vehicle prices? I mean, obviously they went stratospheric, you know, back beginning about a year ago, I think. And, and are they now coming back down to earth? So what, what's the dynamics here with regard to using? Because, and also, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the movements in vehicle prices have had a very significant impact in overall inflation, if I'm not mistaken. They have. They, they, uh, goods inflation has been the story up until now really and uh last year ground zero was the auto market and used the used market which because of the Mannheim index that we put out was uh you know the the poster child for uh how extreme uh the the inflation was how quick uh we were seeing those prices uh move uh move up um and it was all tied to the computer uh, the chip shortages, semiconductor shortages, and a lot of the supply chain problems that were very acute, but but also clearly uh, related to uh, the environment and the amount of stimulus and the real frenzied spending uh, that especially we had uh, a year a year ago. Um, so you know, jump forward to now, and what we've been seeing this year has been a moderation in pricing. Uh, we've we've seen uh, used vehicle prices, both wholesale and retail, uh, come back, come down uh, in the first three months of this year. The CPI uh, is tracking retail used prices, but uh, there historically has been a pretty tight correlation over time with what the Mannheim index uh, sees. By the way, I'll put a plug, especially because of, of it's in your neighborhood. If you've never been to an auto auction before, sometime yeah. you've got to go see Mannheim in Mannheim, yeah. Pennsylvania, uh, the oh, largest in auto auction. I didn't know that. It yeah. is. Oh, okay. The namesake is the town. And um, uh, it is a thing to behold because I would argue outside of the stock market, it is probably the 
best example of, of an efficient and, and live market that you're ever going to see uh, in, in your life. Plus, it's pretty cool to see all the vehicles. Yeah, where's Mannheim, PA? Where is that relative to Philly, where we live? Uh, it's 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 north of you, closer. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah I, I've, I've driven and I've flown, but <laughs> yeah, 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 asking the yeah. wrong guy for that. Well, that sounds like a day trip. Maybe we'll take a you know Moody's Analytics you know excursion up to Mannheim. PA. To the podcast up there. Yeah. Oh, so, and the, the reason podcast. why I bring it up, the wholesale market is a very dynamic market. Historically, it has more price movement in it because effectively every day the market is attempting to clear based mm. on the supply that's feeding the market and what the available demand is. And I will describe what we've gone through uh, in the pandemic is the most extreme uh, demand versus supply gap that we've ever seen uh, historically, because we, we literally had uh, an absolute limited uh, supply situation uh, because of new vehicle production stopping worldwide. There had been no scenario, perhaps, you know, you can say World War II was this way, but there, in the modern era, there had never been a time that all the factories in the world were shut down and all of the supply chains were shut down. Then you had uh, the mistakes that the manufacturers made of actually canceling orders of goods and semiconductors was where there was a real uh, problem with that. So it wasn't just about getting the factories back up and running, it was actually getting the supply chains running uh, that feed that. And because of decades of globalization, uh, generally speaking, there wasn't a lot of resiliency uh, in the global automotive uh, production landscape. And so um, it we never got back to 100% capacity. We were getting close in the fall of last year when um, then uh, the Omicron wave of COVID struck. Yeah. And then we've entered into another series of unfortunate events. We've been dealing with things like earthquakes in Japan. Uh, Canadian trucker strike, uh, you know, uh, the Felicity Ace, the cargo ship that caught on fire and sank, uh, taking down oh, 4,000 European luxury cars with it. Really? Um, so all kinds of random things have, have also contributed to, to this. So you've got acute supply challenge, uh, boosted demand, because not only did we have stimulus and record low. Although, can I interject there quickly, Jonathan, on for yeah. vehicles? Vehicle sales never really got very high, right? I mean, I mean, we were getting 17 million units per annum sales, you know, rock Prior solid before the pandemic. the pandemic. And we, was there ever a month we got above that in the in the, since pandemic hit? I don't think so. No. Uh, no, we had we had a few we had a few strong months um, at the very beginning uh, when when we reopened yeah. the economy and we had more supply and the very beginning of last year. Have to check what the BEA numbers. I don't were. think we ever got above oh. much above March. Uh, March and April of 2021, we got 18. Oh, we so had those a month two months. Two. Yep. Yeah, but it, was, it feels like to me in this d debate about demand, whether the high inflation is related to demand or supply in the vehicle market, it's got to be mostly supply, right? Yeah, I, I would say it was both. I really? think it has okay. been more of a supply problem, and yeah. I. I it's all theory, but I would say we probably would have sold more than 18 million vehicles last year had we had uh, a supply, normal level of supply. Yeah. 
I mean, here's a statistic. Here's a statistic. I because I calculated this for this conversation. If I look at the f five years prior to the pandemic, the uh, average annual sales rate was seventeen point two five million. In since the pandemic, it's been fourteen point six five million. So, you know, it's it's it, that's that that's not demand. That's supply, right? I mean, you just can't can't produce enough. Yes. Yeah. You can you can also. Um, you know, another aspect is, is describing uh, what is the fundamental demand, uh, what's the natural yeah. demand for vehicles. And we've actually seen an increase in the scrappage rate. So the number of vehicles that are lost and have to be replaced. And that typically contributes to a higher level of fundamental demand. Mm. Uh, but I would argue, um, one, during the pandemic, you also had uh, people's preference moving away from shared and public transportation. And so there was a period of time that people were who had no vehicles were looking for vehicles. But then what we started to observe with uh, mobility and people's movements to different places for housing, uh, whether it was buying housing or renting housing, but the movement away from dense urban centers to places that are more vehicle dependent uh, created also um, a, a, a trend that we were essentially following what was happening in the housing market. And historically, vehicle demand is correlated with the housing market. The more home sales you have, uh, the more vehicle sales uh, you have, um, and the more homes are being built, the more pickup trucks are, are in, in demand uh, all mm -hmm. throughout the country. So. Uh, that too has contributed to a higher level of, of demand than what we had before. I want to come back to sales, but before I do that, let's come back. I want to come back to price because I want to try and understand where prices are headed. So my simple way of thinking about this is that, uh, okay, pandemic hits, um, uh, factory shutdown, severe shortages, uh, prices for new cars go skyward because they're so expensive and because of the pandemic, demand for used vehicles goes sky, skyward. So prices are just jumping everywhere. Okay, here we are today. We're still not producing, you know, the, the worst of the supply chain problems seem to be past us, but there's still issues and production hasn't quite gotten back to where it needs to be. Yet used vehicle prices seem to be New vehicle prices haven't rolled over yet. They've stopped rising, it looks like. But used vehicle prices look like they've rolled over. Okay, so what's what's going on? Why? And, and where are we headed? I mean, where, where are prices headed here now going forward? Well, you know, as, as I was mentioning, wholesale prices, I believe, are the most dynamic and will truly uh, reflect the, the market conditions at any given time, more so than any version of retail prices, and especially new retail, which has this, um, you know, process of a manufacturer establishing what the suggested retail price is, uh, and then seeing actually with the marketplace. And that's a place we ought to go actually in the data, because there's some extraordinary trends with people paying well above um, the MSRP, which was an unheard of concept uh, pr prior to this uh, current situation. Um, but it takes an extraordinary imbalance of demand versus supply to take an asset that fundamental fundamentally is a depreciating yeah, asset okay. and turn it into an appreciating asset. Mm. And yes, we had that scenario in 2021, where in most weeks, 
the prices at Mannheim were higher each week than they were the prior week. Um, but that is not the case uh, now. Well, actually, technically, it is the case again in April um, because we're in the heart of tax refund season. And oh, a little <laughs> unknown fact uh, to the broader world is that every single year, and we've, we've got data back to 1995, every single year, prices have gone up uh, in tax refund season in the wholesale market uh, because there is always a temporary surge in demand and a limited amount of supply that uh, moves into the market at that time of the year. Uh, but outside of that effect, I believe we're fully back to vehicles being depreciating assets uh, again. That doesn't mean that we're going to see a price correction, a return to where values were previously. It just means that prices are performing on a go-forward basis in a much more normal way, uh, meaning your vehicle is likely to be worth 10% less a year from now uh, than it is today. So economic gravity is taking hold again. It was suspended for a while, but now it's, right. it's taken hold again. Prices are coming in. So you do you expect used uh, price uh, vehicle prices to continue to decline here going forward, at least for the foreseeable future, next six, 12 months? And, and what about new? Uh, we, we do on the used side expect to see fairly normal depreciation, which should mean uh, vehicle prices go down. Now, depending on how you measure that, though, things like the CPI, uh, things like uh, the Mannheim index uh, itself uh, naturally has uh, price increases over time uh, because vehicles constantly have uh, new technology, uh, new capabilities that essentially have an inherent inflation bias uh, kind of built into it. So historically, wholesale prices have gained about 2% a year. Um, so you, if you adjust for inflation, uh, that's that really typically gives you what the view is. And interestingly, with very high inflation now, and we think we're going to see a 3% decline this calendar year in the Mannheim index, that really means a much bigger decline than normal uh, in the calendar year for wholesale prices. Good. And, and new, I guess that depends more on supply chain issues and if production picks up and so forth and so new, on. New is one where I would continue to expect um, above average increases in prices. Hmm. Um, there is some seasonality to how new prices come out. Typically, the highest prices are when new models are being introduced. So it's the end of the year. And we're in the time of the year where prices are tending to come down slightly. So indeed, December was the most recent peak we had in new vehicle prices, and they've come down the last couple of months. But we're in an environment where supply is right around 1 million units, 1.1 million units at the end of March, when typically we have 4 million units. <laughs> we were just shy of 4 million units. And uh, the same time what, frame. I'm sorry, what's that number? 1.1 million? What is that? One point, that's the number of new vehicles sitting on dealer lots. Oh, dealer lots. Okay. The inventory. Yeah. The inventory. Okay. Yeah. So inventories are still, we haven't been able to get production up. Vehicle producers haven't gotten the production up yet to start rebuilding inventory. No. And because inventory has been decimated, it basically means we will sell only what gets produced uh, yeah. and delivered to the U.S. Okay, so you're saying okay, uses that's coming in economic law, uh, economic gravity is taking hold again. New that's going to take a while before that really starts to come in. 
to any meaningful degree. Hey, Mike, do you agree with that? Do you have a different perspe- any different perspectives on that? Or is that roughly with what, what you're thinking in terms of new and used vehicle prices? I'm expecting the used vehicle prices to be pretty flat throughout this year, not have that much of a come down. That would make sense with what Jonathan said, because they already saw a 3% decrease in this first quarter. So uh, they're probably expecting it to be flat the rest of the year if you're expecting a 3% decrease uh, for uh 2022. Uh, so we're thinking that it stays uh, flat through 2022 and starts to come down in 2023. Mm. And that's a supply and demand story. So you have vehicle production starts to normalize in 2023. You also have the Fed putting the brakes on. So the demand side is something we should forget about here. There's going to be some loss of demand over the end of 2022 into 2023 uh, as interest rates rise. And um, that's going to be part of the story as vehicle prices come down. In new, what about new? New, I think the manufacturers are playing catch up with the market. So we're going to see okay. prices come up. So all those people that are paying above MSRP. The there's the OEMs aren't going to leave that uh, cash on the table. They'll start raising MSRPs. So the dealers can charge it and not feel so bad about it. <laughs> They're doing okay. something wrong. And there is one wild card that's interesting to talk about because it relates to the CPI numbers as well. Um, because one of the biggest uh, gains for the month in March and in the year-over-year category is car and truck rental. And uh, the rental car companies traditionally get all of their fleet from uh, new vehicle manufacturers. They're new vehicles that get put into the rental fleet. Um, But with the supply problems last year, rental car companies became net buyers of used vehicles instead of traditionally feeding uh, the used car market. And that is continuing this year. And if that behavior um, continues into the fall, we could see there's upside uh, to the used prices. And it's principally driven by those rental car companies whose economics are extremely positive because of the scarcity of vehicles and the resurgence in travel uh, that's happening. All those people going to Hershey Park and the like. Hmm. So uh, just bringing this back full circle to what it means for overall inflation, I think what my conclusion is from the conversation is that vehicle prices really, which added significantly to inflationary pressures over the past year, that's not going to be the case in the coming year, but it's not going to be a big drag on inflation until we get into 2023. That's what it sounds like you're saying, both of you are saying, roughly speaking. Yeah, I think, I think there could be times, especially in, in the seasonally adjusted series, that it could uh, be somewhat of a drag uh, okay. in certain months, somewhat of a drag. especially as demand starts to soften and indeed okay. the production starts to improve as much. All right. I'll and take it. We need it. Yep. Okay. And to okay. that point, the, the seasonally adjusted numbers went down for our the Moody's Analytics price index, and they went up for the unseasonally adjusted in March because there is this big seasonal factor in March and April that Jonathan was talking about as dealers start to build up inventory. So the seasonally adjusted and non-seasonally adjusted went in different directions uh, in our index. So it is a big seasonal factor here too. Yeah. Hey, Chris, given all of this and everything else that you throw into the pot, would you say that inflation overall inflation has peaked in the U.S., 8.5% year-over-year CPI through March, highest it's been since 1981. Is that the peak, or are we close to the peak? What do you say? I think we're close. Close. If, if, if not already there, um, really because so much of this is driven by energy and gas prices, if, we, if you do believe that there are no more sanctions coming, 
um, to restrict uh, some of the supply. And we will get some additional supply coming from other other countries in short order that should help to bring those gas prices down, maybe gradually, but at least they shouldn't uh, accelerate much more from here. And if the Fed is, is stepping on the brakes here, that also is going to reduce some of the demand out there. So, Okay. All right. Hey, uh, maybe we'll play part of the game now, or I'm not, I'm not sure we're going to play all of the game, but I got, I got a really good question that's apropos to the conversation up to this point in time. So would you mind right. if I put that forward? Yeah. Just to mix things up a little bit. Is that okay? All right. Cause it's a little bit different. So just remind everybody the game, the statistics game, we each put forward a statistic. The rest of the group tries to figure that out through questioning, clues, deductive reasoning. The best question is one that's uh, not too easy that everyone gets it right away. Not too hard that no one will ever get it. And, you know, a bonus if you can make it apropos to the conversation and to, to recent statistics. Okay. So I'm going to, this is a little different. I'm, this is, uh, instead of me giving you a statistic, I'm going to pose a question to you, and everyone has to look up. You can't look at your screens. I don't want any, anybody looking you know, at the BLS CPI report. But if you go into Table 2 of the Consumer Price Index report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, that's the detailed uh, accounting of all these prices for all these goods and services. So I, I don't know how many there are, but there's got to be a couple, 300 of them. I will... The, whoever gets, and look, you can do this as a group. If you can get th three items for which the year-over-year -year price actually declined, you win. Okay, you're you're a winner. So, of all the goods and services in Table Two, hundreds of services, which items, goods or ser and or services, actually fell year-over-year -year in uh, in the month of March, March of twenty-two. And there yeah, aren't many. Obviously, there aren't many. Use yeah. vehicles. Okay. We just said it. Okay. That's got And that's easy. Use vehicles. <laughs> oh, wait, wait. Hold it. Hold it. No, 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 no. That's not down year over year. That's down uh, month oh, over month. month over month. Okay. Yeah, that, no, no. So yeah. forget about that. I, I was wrong. That's not, that's not one of them. Okay. Let's see how good you guys really are. Uh, smartphones. Smartphones. <laughs> yeah. Ding, 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 ding. Very good. That's a good one. Cause why? Because... That's more the quality adjustments, I think. Right. So the CPI tries to account for the quality of whatever it is you're buying. Like vehicles, they do the same thing. And, you know, even if the price, uh, the actual price is rising, the measured price in the consumer price index could fall because the quality of the product is improving like a smartphone. Jonathan, you were going to say something? I was going to guess something related to sporting goods. Pelotons are top of mind to me as suddenly no longer... Uh, being the focus. <laughs> I think Peloton's a little too narrow of a... <laughs> that may... Actually, I, I did read that. I think they are cutting their uh, their price, although they're going to raise their subscription fee. And the only reason I know this is because I'm a <laughs> avid Peloton user. So, uh, uh, but uh, but no, that, 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 that isn't in... I think that's too too narrow a, 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 an area, but no, not not the, sporting goods. I didn't notice that. There has to be some sort of commodity that was really high in the beginning of the year. So lumber, I know that skyrocketed in late 2020, early 2021. Has it come down at all or? No, that's not it. Yeah. All how right. about, Go how ahead. about some type of personal goods that we were okay. buying last year 
Um, I'm thinking, you know, something something related to kind of healthcare uh, pro- probably could could be down on a year over year basis. Just and, because and sanitizer. Well, can, well, another kind of straightforward. No, that's that. No, not really. But think about go back to Chris's smartphone. What else goes along with a smartphone? What else are you buying? The smartphone well, the, is the phone the, itself. Yeah, the service, the cellular. The, the wireless service, service that's yeah. declining in price. Wireless service prices was declining in price. Uh, is that your Mint what? Mobile coming online and what's Straight that? Talk, Straight Talk Wireless and Mint Mobile? Yeah, I, I don't know exactly what's going carriers. There. Yeah, but uh, the measured price is down in the CPI year over year. Uh, technology, what other technology? PC, PCs, they're down. Yeah, how about con- consumer technology, like you know, TVs? Yeah, audio equipment. Okay, here's one that'll blow your mind. Oh, film and photographic, right? That's always yeah, down. exactly. VCRs. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. VC- Actually, that is one. Yeah, the VCRs. They're falling in price. Yeah. Um, here, here's one that's really interesting. Uh, uh, checking and other bank services, Check, mm. checking account and other banks, which makes sense, right? Because, um, you know, obviously a lot of online competition uh, for financial services. But that, oh, one others, and I don't know what's going on here, it might be just a, um, a technical artifact of uh, food at elementary schools, uh, maybe because schools are close yeah yeah maybe they don't aren't opening I, i'm not sure what that's all about but that's it that gives you a sense of what's going on you usually there's a lot of things yeah. that are, have you know prices are falling you know certainly is measured in the consumer price index but not here so i thought that was pretty uh illustrative um no cowbells i'm afraid but uh not bad not bad <laughs> does anyone else want to do uh does anyone else have a statistic that's apropos to the discussion so yeah, far i've got one for you okay fire away jonathan and and this is this is really going to put put mark to the test oh geez it's 204 billion dollars 204 billion um is it uh uh something related to consumer purchases consumer spending I would say it's directly related to buying power. Oh, buying power. Uh, Import, export. Difference that came out this week. Four billion. Is uh, is it is it like um, I'm going to make this up just to you know throw it into the mix and maybe we get some clues? Is that is that the amount that that uh, people have to spend on interest on their auto loans? And I sort of teased the concept earlier when I mentioned something that was impacting the seasonal uh, seasonality. Oh my goodness. This is really tough. Oh, First, refunds. I'm sorry. Oh, Complex tax refunds. refunds. Yes. 204.4 uh. billion is the amount of refunds issued by the IRS as of April 1st this year. So the latest uh. numbers. Uh. 
Is that it's up or down? Or is that on track? Yeah. Down 4% against 2019, which was oh, yeah. our last sort of normal yeah, cadence, yeah. despite the average refund being at 14%. So mm. basically what has happened is tax refund season is about four weeks behind normal. And as a result, in the used car market, we typically see a surge in sales in March. And it didn't happen in March. It's happening now in April. And that's why we're seeing a lot of the seasonal adjustments uh, really cause uh, strange movements and non-seasonal moving one way and seasonal moving the uh, other oh, that's way. Interesting. And by, it impacts credit too, because delinquencies have an extreme seasonal pattern to them. Um, mm-hmm. And it's based on the receipt of funds uh, that is pretty sizable because tax refunds will probably be about 400 billion this year. So why are they delayed four weeks compared to like, Backlog. The IRS is oh. just so far behind. So far behind. Oh, interesting. Okay. So so that has depressed. I mean, the the conclusion is that maybe depressing uh, say, uh, cons- like retail sales for March were soft, and we'll come back to that in a second. That could be because refunds were shy of where they're typically by, by the That's month right. of March. By my calculation, I make a projection of how many people will receive a refund. And based on that estimate, I estimated using that number that less than half of, of folks who will get a refund had received one by then, when at the same point in 2019, 77% had received their refunds by that point. Interesting. Okay, good. Oh, that's a great one. Um, should we move on? Oh, Mike, you got one? Okay. Yeah, I got two numbers. Um, positive 7.6%, negative 1.3%. A couple of hints. This is a release we used to cover on Economic View. Uh, we don't have it on there anymore. And I used to write it. Um, and the other one is, uh, this is the highest, the 7.6% is the highest growth rate since 2017. Oh, wow. Okay. So two statistics, up 7.6, down, what'd you say, 1.3? One three, and they're both year over year. And this is a, a release auto related. Auto related. Is it auto finance related? Yep. Is it the affordability? Uh, loans are up seven six, and leases are down one three. Nope. Nope. It's close. Uh, We're getting okay. uh. So it's balances are up seven point six percent. But accounts are down 1.3%. Okay. Well, I got to get some credit for that. <laughs> but you're right. That's a good one. So you're saying auto loans and leases, yep. outstanding, are up 7.6% year over year through, I guess, March. Yes. That's based on credit file data we get from- This Apple. is the credit forecast release we yeah, used to Equifax do. Equifax yep. data, the credit yep. file data. And you're saying that the number, oh, okay. So the number of a People with vehicle loans is down one three. Yes, and that's the that's the largest contraction since two thousand eleven. Oh, twenty eleven. So, yeah. so the average Recession. is up. Oh, yeah. So, so that goes to the higher prices, I guess. Higher right? prices, but it's also yeah. the first sign of depressed demand uh, uh, that we're seeing. Yeah. That maybe some affordability issues. I mean, our affordability index that Cox and Moody's does together is at the highest level or near the highest level. It takes almost forty three weeks of uh, income to purchase a median family income to purchase a new vehicle. Uh, we have that index going back to 2012. Uh, and this is at the same time we had the loan officer survey where they're 
saying they're loosening lending standards. So they have the diffusion index on the loan, the lending standards from the loan officer survey from the Fed. And that's uh, the, the spigots are open. All, all different credit, uh, credit scores are increasing in balances. So they're not constricting, thinking that there's a risk out there. I think it's more on the consumer side saying that they're not going in and we don't really want to take out a loan for this vehicle if we think the prices are going to come down. Uh, in the near future. So I think it's or, the first or, sign of demand oh, starting to get hit. Can it be demand destruction? The prices, I guess that's what you're saying. The yep. prices are so high, I can't afford this, so I'm not, I can't buy. Or they can't, isn't it, there's no inventory too? They can't buy because there's just no inventory? So, yeah, supply is definitely a part of it too. Yep. Because a yeah, big chunk okay. of that total account decline year over year is in leases. Leases are down 11% uh, in, in my read of the uh Equifax data year over year as of March. And the lease story is a supply. Well, it is fundamentally a supply, a supply. story because traditionally yeah. manufacturers uh, Sabine yeah. uh, and make those lease payments uh, pretty more attractive than uh, financing. And they are simply not attractive at all. So lease penetration is at the lowest level in more than a decade as a result. Right. Interesting. Okay, With prices as high, risks are really high for just these loans going underwater. And so even the lease side, does the uh, lender want to give a lease out if they think prices are going to come down so quickly that they'll end up losing a lot of that. They'll, they take on a lot of that residual risk when they start um, making uh, assigning payments for those leases. Hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, things are so topsy-turvy that they just don't know what to make of it, right? So the natural instinct is turn cautious. Yep. Not do them. Yeah. Okay. That was a good one. Yeah. Um, and, and in terms of credit quality, in terms of delinquencies and repossession rates on vehicles, that's still pretty good, right? Or yeah. Very good. It's two and a half, two and a half percent, I think, is the total auto delinquency rate. And that's would be prior to the recession, that'd be the lowest of all time. So it's, oh, it's come oh up God. from the bottom, which is close to one and a half percent, but it's up to two and a half percent. And that still would have been an all time low prior to the pandemic. I guess, it, you know, when you think about it, why would, I mean, you got low unemployment, you got lots of jobs, you got, you know. Student loans deferred. Student loans deferred. You got vehicle prices that are up. So, you know, you got equity, you know, in yep. the car. You might have locked you know, in a low rate, right? So Locked in a low rate, you know. So it all feels pretty good. And underwriting has been pretty good or okay. Not, not it's okay, I guess, is the way you would characterize it. I would characterize it. Would you agree? It's, it's uh, the early on, right after the pandemic, it was only high risk scores that were getting loans. They've gone down uh, into the low prime, subprime, much more than they were uh, right after the pandemic. So banks and finance companies are getting a little risky. Banks more than okay. finance companies. So it's which now, is surprising. Now they are. But what the, yes. the, but prior the, to that, it was all yeah, very high okay. credit scores. Right. Yep. Got it. How about the uh, loan term? Are there still a lot of seven-year and 10-year auto loans? Loan, loan terms are growing. That's part of the, the loan access that's expanding. The average is right at 70 months right now. Okay. Uh, and you are seeing an, an uptick uh, as prices and interest rates are going up now. You are starting to see that move higher again. Um, but it's still a very low percentage that are more than seven years. Yep. Good, good news on that for data nerds. The uh, Federal Reserve, they usually only release the 60-month interest rate and the 48-month interest rate, which is laughable since no one gets a 48-month loan anymore. Yeah. But the, uh, they're going to start releasing the 72-month 
interest rates sometime this year. So it's good news for all of us. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and also since we were talking about CPI for data nerds in the auto business, (laughs) get ready for a major change in the new vehicle component of the CPI. um, Because you guys are really, really, you're almost too nerdy for my taste, Chris. Now we're going to get a lecture on the change in the uh, vehicle price in uh, CPI index. Go ahead, Jonathan. F- feel free. Go ahead. Well, we did housing not too long ago, right? We went deep <laughs> into the <laughs> next month about new vehicle prices, uh, you know, substantially revised higher. Oh, uh, they oh really? have been testing a new methodology that I believe is way closer to, to reading what is at, happening in the marketplace. And the last uh, comparison I did would suggest that new vehicle prices are up uh, more in the range of 19% year over year, rather than I think the latest one was uh, closer to 12%. Uh, oh, goodness. Wow. Oh, goodness. So we are going to see, this is next month, you said, for the month of April? I believe uh, for the month of April in the numbers that get released in May, uh, we'll include the shift to the new methodology. It, and it's not a level shift in price. It's going to actually affect the growth rate? over the past year? Well, yeah, they're restating uh, the historical series by shifting yeah. this methodology, yeah. But but you think it, it's going to show an ex- even greater acceleration in new vehicle prices? That's right. So Which inflation, oh, well, we may not have peaked on inflation right. then, if that's the case. Yeah, I might need well, to change my tune here. So. It, but it's, it's important for this intellectual exercise of where used vehicle prices need to go because the absolute relationship that governs where used vehicle prices has to be what new vehicle prices are, because they they yeah. are the the tether uh, or the anchor to which the used vehicle prices can't get too far uh, away from. And um, we think that new has not been measured accurate accurately and historically, and this will be a big move in the right direction. Okay, well, let's keep our eyes on that one. That's interesting. Hey, Chris, did is your statistic relevant to prices, or should we move on and come back, or what do you want to? It do? is relevant, so let's get it out okay, of the way. Okay, then fire away. <laughs> uh, it's a twofer: four point seven percent and twenty percent. Four point seven and twenty. 20. Uh, is this in the CPI report? It's derived from the CPI. Oh. Is, this is your own concoction? No, it's not my own concoction. <laughs> it is uh, It is released, officially released at the same time. But it's not a As, part of the Consumer Price Index report. It is not. It is not released by the BLS. Oh. Is one month a month, the other year over year? They are both year over year. They're both year over year. And they're, are they related to prices? They are. Yeah. Is it the PPI or producer nope. pricing? Nope. No. No. Uh, I told uh, you I had to make it hard because of last week. No, I know. Yeah, you know, you well, last week prices. was hard, but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, last week was the food food price index, I believe. Yes. Uh, yeah, from the UN. Uh, uh, Jonathan, Michael, any thoughts there? Uh, you're saying it's related to, it's derived from consumer the consumer price index, right? CPI. Uh, Fuel related? Both. Is it something we cover, you know, regularly, or is this kind no. of more of an esoteric <laughs> series? It's more of an esoteric <laughs> series. It's from is the it Atlanta co- Fed. It, it's from it's the released Atlanta by the Fed. Fed. Atlanta Fed. Is it the wage tracker? Nope. 
That's uh, the a cool Atlanta one. Fed this is another cool one. Wage tracker. Yeah, w- tracks wages. Uh, geez, Louise. I, 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 uh, can you give us another hint up- without giving it away? Um, uh, Atlanta. Think Fed. of the magnitudes, right there. Yeah. Can you give us one and not the other? Well, if I give you one, you'll guess the we'll other. We'll get the other. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. I get. I give. You, you guys give. give? You guys yes. give? Uncle, give. All right. we all give. So 20% is the flexible price CPI. And 4.7% is the sticky price CPI oh, calculated by the Atlanta Fed. Right, right. You know what? I never right. look at that. That's int- I look at all the Cleveland Fed median and trimmed mean, but I don't look at the Atlanta Fed. I sh- it sounds like I should. So explain, yeah, explain cool. this. Explain this to people and, and what it's saying. Yeah, so the idea here, kind of like the, the difference between the headline and the, and, and the core, you're trying to abstract some type of volatility, if you will. The idea here is to look at uh, each of the 300, 400 individual price components and identify those prices that tend to move very rapidly, right? So gas prices are a good example. They, they move very rapidly within, a, a, say, a three-month period. And there are other prices that tend to be sticky. They, they don't move around all that much. They, they're more gradual. Um, so the idea is to uh, separate out all the different prices in the in the CPI report into these two categories and track um, and track those measures over time. The reason why you probably don't look at it most of the time is because they tend to be pretty stable, yeah. right? Doesn't really give you much more information. But at, at a time like this, it does give you uh, some sense of of what's going on. And in particular, this. The, uh, the theory behind the sticky price index is that actually should incorporate more of an inflation expectations, right? If there are prices that you can't really change all that, that frequently that, t- that tend to get stuck, then the price setter is going to um, incorporate more of the inflation expectations. Oh, you know, that's important. an interesting point. Uh, yeah. A very interesting point. Yeah. So yeah. So four prices points are more <laughs> influenced by people's inflation and in businesses, inflation expectations. Yeah. That's right. That's right, because the flexible you have. Well, yeah, if I get it wrong sure. this month, I can. The market will adjust relatively quickly. But these other ones, maybe. More and what did you say sticky adjust. was for what for four point seven percent? Okay, because house it, prices it, are key. I mean, the housing, not house prices, but the housing uh, costs, consumer price index is a big part of that. I would assume. Yeah, that's right. Is it, that's did you right. say that already? Okay, I missed yeah, that. yeah. Okay. And so the sticky price index was four point five percent last month. So it isn't. Yeah. Know, it is uh, indicating that mm. consumers certainly are still worried about inflation and that's feeding into the expectations and yeah. prices as well. So. Interesting. That was a good one. Uh, we have to uh, start following. Jonathan, did you know that? That's the rest of your Fed, the Atlanta Fed. No. Did you know that? It's not something I follow. No. <laughs> You're not, not as data, data geek as I thought you were. I thought you were really <laughs> one of those really. Yeah. <laughs> Mike's a data, really a, a huge data geek. He process. I think Mike processes, I think he's, I think Jonathan, you told me before we started that you were the biggest user of our data buffet data oh, service. Point. Yeah, at one point. Yeah. At one point. I think Mike is now. Mike turns <laughs> Carl's gonna start charging me. Yeah. Carl's gonna yes, exactly. yeah, there you go. Carl's gonna, he's definitely making your life more difficult. I know that. Talk about budget cutting, you know. So anyway. Uh okay, well, I wanted to talk about the other big economic release of the week and that was retail sales that came out and yep. Chris you want to give us a rundown there what did what happened with retail sales for the month of March 
Yeah, so I'd say on the surface, retail sales look healthy. Um, they grew uh, half a percent in March, right? So that that's good, right? In the sense, consumers are are still spending; they're not uh, they're not cutting back uh, dramatically. However, if you dig into the the data a little bit, what you find is that uh, much of that increase is due to rising prices, mm. right? So, uh, gas station spending, for example, was up eight point nine percent. Right. That's a big contributor uh, to that to that measure. Um, what else can I tell you? The, uh, there was a revision to the retail sales for February. Uh, they increased from 0.3% to 0.8% uh, growth. That actually is important or is um, relevant as we think about GDP in the first quarter. Right. So these retail sales numbers do feed into um, the GDP calculation. I think Ryan's gotten into this in the past about the control mm-hmm. retail sales and whatnot. So uh, from that standpoint, our GDP estimate has actually gone up uh, a bit for the first quarter. So that's that's the positive. But again, there's yeah. um, some cross currents well, here. <laughs> People are increasing their spending, but not organically. It's because they're facing these higher prices. And- yeah. Well, you know, Scott Hoyt, who's another one of our uh, good yeah. economists who is uh, all things retail, I think he was formerly chief economist J.C. Penney, he sent uh, data yesterday showing retail sales, nominal retail sales. Yeah. That's what you're talking about, you know, the right. 0.5. And then That's so-called, right. well, not so-called, but real retail sales after inflation. And this is deflated with retail prices. So, you know, cor- corresponding prices to what's being uh, being measured here, retail goods. And uh, this, I, I didn't know this, but the real retail sales has not increased at all in about a year. It, it, you know, it increased about a year ago when the economy reopened, when vaccines became available, and when then we had the American Rescue Plan that helped support demand. But since about March, April last year, they're 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 flat. There's there's no increase in real retail sales, which is a, part of that may also be shifting now because people are out and about they're traveling again so spending on services is is improving so overall consumer spending continues to move forward but uh so part of this is just a shift in preferences back because the pandemic is fading but nonetheless i found that pretty fascinating you know very interesting yeah uh, i guess related to that um non-store i don't know if you caught this but non-store retail sales actually fell yeah i saw that four percent so big decline yeah that that does suggest people are yeah. changing behavior, right? Going to the supermarket. They're going of... back to, to stores again. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah. Well, the other part of the of the story here is vehicle sales. Right. And they remain weak, right? So in the month of March, new vehicle sales were 13.3 million annualized. And as I said earlier, you know, pre-pandemic, we were rock solid 17 million at least units per annum. Uh, so, so I guess the, I uh, throw it back to the two uh, vehicle mavens. When are we going to get back? Well, I got a bunch of questions. I guess when are we going to get back to something we would consider more consistent with long-run trends, which I, I, I guess would still be 17 million units per annum. And in in that vein or in that context, how much so-called pent-up demand is there out there, right? I mean, people putting off purchases because they couldn't get a vehicle because they weren't being produced or some demand destruction like Mike was talking about because prices are too high. How much is that pent-up and going to come back in sales in the future? And Mike, and Mike, I should preface this by saying Mike and I have been having a long-running debate, although 
I think I'm like now in his camp or something. I think <laughs> oh. I, I, I moved in his so. direction. I'm not sure. But anyway, but let me throw that to Jonathan first and see what Jonathan has to say. Well, I, I think we've got years um, before we see the supply problems, which, which we were discussing earlier, uh, are the dominating theme in the, in the new vehicle market. Because this is not a scenario where you just bounce back to what the production once was, uh, because you've got multiple new um, kind of factors leading to the fact that production is actually likely to be less uh, over the longer term, or at least severely constrained for a period of time. One, we, we're go undergoing a shift to electrification, and that means retooling plants. The plants tend to be more expensive. As a result, there's more combinations, more partnerships. And in essence, I think you can argue lower long-term uh, global capacity uh, for production. And now, because of the pandemic and what we've seen with the uh, dependencies on weak parts of the supply chain, uh, plus issues with certain parts of the world, uh, Russia, China, uh, becoming uh, less uh, reliable in the future, uh, there is there's more more of a focus on resiliency than absolute lowest costs, mm -hmm. and I believe that's uh, reducing overall capacity, reducing overall efficiency, and the net net is global production probably peaked uh, in 2019, and we're probably mm -hmm. not going back to that number uh, any anytime soon. Um, so the way that we look at it from new vehicle sales is that. Uh, we we have the had the potential in the short term to be selling 18 plus. Uh, we have built up pent up demand. Uh, we think it's in the neighborhood of three to four million units combined across retail and, and fleet, which further adds to the assumption of supply uh, sitting on dealers' lots or traditional measures of supply in total units or day supply is likely to be well below normal for years as you slowly get that production back up to mm. capacity. But the reality is that the challenges in 2022 will, will likely persist uh, through the end of the year. And this is more of you start to improve in 23 and into 24. That's not what we thought coming into the year. Coming into the year, we thought this was the year you start to see gradual improvement. And then by 23, you're, you're getting to some new uh, pace of activity that's likely 16 to 17 million. But we think that's been pushed out uh, roughly, roughly a year. Wow, interesting. So, as I mentioned earlier, the average sales is since the pandemic hit is fourteen point six five million. That's annualized. We were thirteen three in March. So, where do you think we'll be at the end of the year, Jonathan? Roughly speaking, are we going to be at fourteen six five, or are we going to be still? We're calling for fifteen three for the year, and I think or the range the is likely fourteen nine to fifteen three. So, in other okay. words, I think. I think there's risk to the downside to the 15.3 that we currently forecast. Okay. And you said three and a half to 4 million in pent up demand. That's the demand that was put off during the pandemic that will come back at some point here when there's enough supply. Yeah. There's a solid 2 million at least in fleet um, that, that, that would be buying. And it's not just an issue of, of prioritization and making those vehicles available it, it's literally production. Uh, we, the manufacturers have prioritized where the chips go. 
uh, and where their, uh, their staffing issues are preventing them from being at 100% in a factory. They're only produce, producing certain vehicles, the most profitable vehicles, the most profitable configurations. So we've got strange shortages, even in things that you would think would be more expensive, like vans um, and things that are important for delivery, um, that there's a substantial amount of, of pent-up demand that's going to take quite a while uh, to get to a level we can produce. Interesting. Hey, Mike, uh, you, you heard that. I think my guesstimate for pent-up, and it, to be humble here, estimating pent-up demand is not easy because estimating trend demand for the vehicle, I've tried this over a 30-year period, and it's really tough to do, particularly given the pandemic and the effects that has on preferences and driving and depreciation rates and so forth and so on. But I, I I'm coming up with like Two and a half million units in pent up demand. What, what do you have a sense of? Of do you have a view, Mike? I think yeah, you do. I know it's closer you do, to two, closer to two. Closer to two, because uh, okay. I've I keep a close eye on those miles traveled, as yeah. well as uh, the employment at vehicle maintenance facilities uh, to be able to try and keep track of who's who's bringing the cars in for longer, who's who's basically driving through the demand that they have and who's not driving as much. So you have two different ways that you can decrease the amount of demand that's not being fulfilled. I don't keep as close an eye on the fleet side as Jonathan, but we do have those total numbers, which don't do include fee, fleet from the BEA. Yeah. Um, but I'm just more concerned in the short term with the, the neon issue. I know we've, we've beat, beat that drum before, the but- the, the neon issue, issue oh, the semiconductors, yeah. uh, the right. 50% has been taken offline. Neon prices are up. The semiconductors, uh, um, That's Russia producers. invading Ukraine, by the yes. way, right? Yep, Russia it, invading Ukraine. Yeah. So, uh, Ingas, I believe, is uh, it's located in um, Mariupol. So they've been right? shut down. Yes, that's where they're located. So they're not producing. They, they were shut down immediately. And Cryoin, they're in Odessa and they shut down and they said they don't think they're, they're ever going to be able to open back up. So because they don't have supply to, of the, the raw material to uh, make the, the pure neon for these lasers. The, so I, I'm concerned that they've these large producers, uh, so Intel, TMSC, they have a six month supply and backlog. And then this is going to be burned through faster than they can find new sources of supply. So I think there's a real risk to how much how new semiconductors are going to be produced in the second half of this year. Yeah, just to connect the dots for everybody. So Russia yep. invaded Ukraine. Uh, Russia, Ukraine produce a, a, a bulk of the neon for global export markets. That neon is used for lasers that etch chips. The chips are obviously used in vehicles. So if I don't have neon, can't produce chips, I can't produce cars. And that's what you're saying. It, it hasn't had an impact yet because there's a backlog that their uh, producers are blowing through, but it, you know, it feels like this is going to be an issue in the second half of the year, going into twenty three. Definitely, I got that right. Okay, yep. Jonathan, do you is that right? Is that right? Is, is, yes. is there any new? That's right. Okay. And I don't know if if most of the production forecasts have baked in those challenges because if you look at the production forecasts, they start to improve yeah. at the end of this year, and that yeah. that injects risk. Okay. All right. That's a little depressing hey uh the we this we've been chatting here for i think a little over an hour so i, I don't want to keep and i, I want to respect your time so we've got probably another five ten minutes to go so uh, the question to the group is do we want to talk about i'll give you three choices 
one, electric vehicles, two, kind of new innovations in uh, the vehicle industry around uh, the way we sell cars and the way we buy cars and what are in cars, what is a car, and or three, the stagflation. Stagflation because that's kind of people's top of mind, you know, and we kind of been dancing around that this whole podcast. We began with high inflation. We talked about weak retail sales. That's kind of in the spirit of stagflation. Okay, so what do you guys want to do? Which one of those do you want to talk about? Mike wants to talk about the Phillies, I know, but, you know, we'll have to table that. John, uh, Jonathan, you're our guest. I'm going to yes. let you choose. You pick which one you want to choose. Uh, I choose stagflation. Because Ooh, I really interesting. Want to interesting. Guys, That's not, I think okay. it's super relevant uh, yeah. to, be, to be talking about. And uh, we, we, can, we can have another session to talk Absolutely. about vehicles and new innovations and mobility. Absolutely. Well, definitely. And then by then, I'll... I'll my brother Carl will have approved the budget for the cowbell and I can give you a cowbell, but, uh, but anyway, uh, that could um, be a while. That could be a while. That could be a while. Jeez. Yeah, we'll have autonomous vehicles by then. <laughs> yes, exactly. flying, flying autonomous. A flying autonomous vehicle. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, okay. All right, Chris, you level set define stagflation. Uh, for the folks out there what is because i think people they know they've heard stagflation they know they don't like it they don't want it but what is it exactly say well there's some differences in the definition i would say it's a combination of high inflation and low growth so higher unemployment combined with uh with high inflation so so do you would you say if inflation stays you go back to your sticky price say around five percent four or five percent and unemployment is let's say four or five percent right now we're at three six so let's say it's closer to five so five and five if we had five and five you know you know a a period of five percent unemployment a period of five percent inflation would you consider that stagflation well that's a good question i probably wouldn't because i think of i think of well it really depends on the trend right yeah if you're saying inflation is high but trending downward and yeah. unemployment maybe is up but stable or actually trending down then yeah maybe it's stagflation for that short period but yeah in the sense of it being a problem that i have to worry yeah, let's about let's say it's let's really say that it. that's the that's the the world we live in for you know at least a couple of years would you consider that stagflation jonathan would you consider that stagflation or how would you define it or would you define it differently well i think of stagflation as the late 70s and that seems uh, okay. more extreme and and a longer period and okay. relatively unique but i i i really wanted to hear what your opinion was on that. <laughs> well i don't think there's like, i think there's very little likelihood we get to well the 70s and 80s that was a period of i don't you know a period double digit consistent double digit inflation right. and a period of not double digit unemployment, but very high unemployment, five to 10% unemployment. So we went back, Mike, did you look up what was June unemployment in June of 1981? I said seven, three, I made that up, but I'm just, yeah, that seven, gives you four. A, are you kidding me? It's seven. second quarter. Yeah. Okay. Wait a second. We're going to stop for a second. I want everyone to recognize. What do you think? <laughs> All right, Ben. Our, uh, our, you have to <laughs> splice right, okay. in the Kyle seven, Bell four. at this point. And I'm sure the seasonal adjustment factor was off, and it was actually seven three. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. But anyway, that I don't think there's any 
I don't think we're going back. That's that's pretty hard to get to that kind of scenario. So in my view, if you get five and five, five percent inflation, five percent unemployment, that's going to feel really ugly, bad. It already feels bad, but that's going to feel really bad. And I consider that to be stagflation. But but uh, uh, but uh, I, let me ask you this question. Uh, and maybe I should say also. The reason I don't, there's a lot of reasons why I don't think we go back to the 70s and 80s. I mean, you know, people don't recall, but we this, the 70s and 80s took almost a decade and a half to get to the 70s and 80s. The, the, with regard to inflation, that became a problem beginning in the 60s. You know, the very expansive fiscal policy, you know, Vietnam War, the Great Society. Uh, it was also related to uh, uh, labor market dynamics where we had a lot of co cost of living adjustments built in. So if wages rose, that got into prices. If prices rose, that got into wages, which got into prices, prices and you got into this wage price uh, kind of spiral. Um, you know, the Federal Reserve didn't really understand the role of inflation expectations. We didn't, that wasn't even a, a thought back in that period that, you know, that was something that we learned how important that was coming out of that period. So I, I think there's a lot more differences between now and the 70s and 80s than there are similarities. But that doesn't mean we can't go into, you know, something that is stagflation-esque, like a five and a five. But I would say, and I'll give you my view on the likelihood of that, and then I'd be curious, you know, your views and whether you'd push back, is that the probability of that happening, of us going into any kind of stagflation environment is pretty low. And the reason is, the fundamental reason is, it's a policy choice. It's a choice. You know, it's the Federal Reserve has to allow that to happen. And based on the very painful experience of the 70s and 80s, uh, when they learned that the only way out of stagflation was a very, very prolonged and severe uh, recession, in fact, two recessions back to back with double-digit unemployment to get us out of that mess, they would much pref they would uh, err on the side of pushing us they would push us into recession earlier to ensure that we didn't get into that stagflation environment so you know if it felt like we're going down that dark path they'd say okay i'm going to raise rates now and we're going in and we're going to wring out these inflationary pressures and get inflation expectations back down to something more consistent that it's a choice and they're not going to take they're not going to make that mistake and, and and make that choice always you can always make a misstep and you could misread and they could, you know, you could end there. But I'd say the probabilities of that are pretty low. I said put them at one in 10, you know, something like that. What do you think, Chris? Do you have a different perspective, a different view? I actually think it's even lower than that. Even lower the, than that. The okay. Fed is, uh, well, the wild card here is some politicization of the Fed, right? If, if we, if the, uh, the next president were yeah. to uh, appoint someone. That's a point. That's a good point. To, you know, favor certain policies that could backfire. But the, I think fundamentally, it's kind of ingrained in the Fed at this point, given the 70s and 80s experience that, you know, inflation has to be, has to take priority, right, of the dual mandate at the end of the day. And so I, I do think they will slam on the brakes hard uh, as necessary to get inflation under control at the cost of a, of a recession. Yeah, good point. Hey, Jonathan, Mike, anything you want to add to that? That conversation around stagflation? Uh, yeah. The oil independence of the United States means that we're not going to have an aggregate supply shock the way that we did in the late 70s. Great point. Um, the, 
we're less dependent on oil and gas than we were at that time uh, as, as an economy. Uh, so those things I think also help uh, with the case that it's it's not very likely to happen without the, I didn't even think of Chris's point about politicizing the Fed. That didn't even cross my mind. I'm scared of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah that, but yeah, so I, I think it's, I don't think it's very likely to happen. Yeah. Jonathan, any, any perspectives, any views? Yeah, I, I think I agree with all of the arguments uh, that, that you guys are making that make it a less likely outcome. What I'm observing, though, is this interesting uh, thing that Wall Street seems to be presenting as we have two likely binary choices ahead of us, stagflation or, or recession. And uh, actually, even your podcast last week, uh, I think- That was pretty depressing, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. Was it 75? Mr. Dorides, he went to the dark side on us. Yeah. Not the very dark side. Uh, It's pretty dark. (laughs) I thought you said. But it sounds like like making the choice and looking historically, uh, I was looking back at what vehicle sales were uh, in the late 70s. And definitely that environment of high interest rates and stagflation uh, uh, scenario was not super supportive of strong vehicle demand. Um, But yet, if we had a recession that broke that, um, and that recession played out more like the 2001 recession, which is sort of where my head went in the discussion uh, from you guys last week, that sounded like a much better environment for vehicle markets. So I guess I would root for the recession over stagflation. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. Okay, very good. Hey, Jonathan, do you have a Twitter handle? Yes, at what Smoke is it? on Cars. That's a great one. That is a great one. And uh, Mike, do you have a Twitter handle? No, I don't. Okay. You, you, smart move, by the way. Uh, and I know Chris does. What's your Twitter handle? But you're, you're a LinkedIn but guy. I never you're a LinkedIn kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I'm at Mark Sandy. Just saying. Or at, you know how to spell Mark Sandy, right? Mark Sandy. At Mark Sandy. Okay. Uh, and you're not a LinkedIn guy. Yeah. And I am not a LinkedIn guy. Right, I've so. not, I've not uh, evolved into. That's, that's a higher level of being. I've not gotten there yet. Yeah. Anyway, Jonathan, it was fantastic having you on. I appreciate it, and we're definitely having you back because we have to talk about EVs and all these cool things going on in the auto sales market. Uh, but, Mike and I are working on EV affordability analysis, so maybe that that that'll ah, be use. Perfect. Okay. Very good. Uh, very very good. And uh, Mike, good to have you. As always. You weren't as combative this time. I don't know. Why. Well, maybe because I agreed you with you. You agreed to my forecast yeah. as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it works. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Very good. And with that, we're going to call it a podcast. Take care, everyone. Bye.